This is Hebwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Calling rumors of potential insolvency and an attending run to withdraw uninsured deposits, on March 10th, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, FDIC, stepped in and took control of Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the United States. This bank failure came nearly 15 years to the day after the collapse of Bear Stearns, the bank failure that helped trigger a global financial crisis, followed by a comprehensive raft of regulations known as Dodd-Frank to limit the risk of future bank failures. In the week following Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, politicians exploited the public's anxiety to either create narratives of greedy executives exploiting lax oversight, or instead blaming capricious bank board members concerned more with social justice than with financial prudence. However, the actual causes of Silicon Valley Bank's failure appear to be manifold, having some features unique to its investor-focused business model, while other systemic causes are shared by the entire banking industry. What were the causes of Silicon Valley Bank collapse? Who will pay for the losses incurred? What are the implications for the entire banking sector and its depositors? And what is the proper policy response to reestablish trust in our banks? My guest today is Dr. Norbert J. Michel, Vice President and Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where he specializes in issues pertaining to financial markets and monetary policy. Dr. Michel has written extensively on banking industry health from the regulatory regimes following the global financial crisis through different administrations and regulations, and now as banks face the challenge of remaining solvent during rapid interest rate rises. Dr. Michel will share with us his views on why Silicon Valley Bank failed, what vulnerabilities other banks share in a time of high rates, and what investors and depositors should know when they trust their money to an institution. When I return, I'll be joined by financial market and monetary policy expert, Dr. Norbert J. Michel. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Vice President and Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, Dr. Norbert Michel. Welcome to Hubwonk, Norbert. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, it's Now we're recording a little more than a week uh, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Uh, and I know our listeners are concerned that where there's smoke, there may be fire. Uh, most of our listeners were adults uh, 15 years ago when the uh, financial crisis of 2008 happened, uh, and they're worried perhaps that we may be on a precipice of, of something similar. So what I want to do is have you come in and, and explain to us uh, what is perhaps similar, what's different, what makes SVB a, a special case perhaps, uh, but what uh, kind of uh, stresses are on all banks uh, as, as we speak today. So before we get into the weeds, I want to start very basically for our, for our listeners. How does a bank make money? Well, typically a bank gets funds from somewhere, uh, whether that be depositors or uh, other securities um, or other investors rather, and or borrowing it, and then they lend out money. Uh, and and the difference in the money that they pay to get those funds and the money that people pay them to borrow funds is how they profit. So. Oh. So they're looking at that spread, that difference. So in very basic terms, if I, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplify, I go down and I make deposits at the bank, uh, and I, and they pay me. It's a little more these days, but one or two percent. Someone comes up in the other door and says, "I want to borrow money for a house," uh, and they're going to charge them five, six, seven percent. The difference in there is is where the profit is made. That that is it. That I mean, obviously we're oversimplifying this, but that is basically the idea. That's it. <laughs> so what our listeners will want to know is. 
SVP, Silicon Valley Bank, as its name perhaps suggests, uh, had a different kind of uh, depositor and, uh, frankly, different uh, types of assets. So share with our listeners, what, what is different or special about Silicon Valley Bank? Well, what's, what's different about them or special about them is that they were highly concentrated in one area, in one industry. And um, that that by itself is a little bit unique in that most banks are much more diversified. Most large banks are much more diversified, whether it be geographically or throughout different industries. Um, but but Silicon Valley Bank was not. And it looks to be the case that a very uh, large proportion of their depositor base also all came from all looked looked very similar it was a lot of venture capitalist guys a lot of vc guys uh, a lot of tech guys and that is also not the norm um again there's usually a broader base of depositors than what you saw there so uh, contrary to my model where it's ordinary guys going in dropping off their uh, hard-earned money and their paycheck and perhaps borrowing these are different these are as you mentioned investors venture capitalist guys with tens of millions of dollars um, yeah. many of whom know each other, uh, but these guys seem like, uh, they'd be, they're wealthy. Uh, they know, uh, finance, they know investing. Um, how does that profile compare with, let's say a bank that has just ordinary, you know, run of the mill investors? Well, theoretically it's, it's different in that you have much more sophisticated finance guys. Um, and you know, there's a lot of controversy over this right now, but I, I would still, until I see definitive proof otherwise <laughs> those 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 depositors are more sophisticated and in tune to finance in general and hopefully to what their bank is doing um and you know then in I'm I'm a finance guy from way back and this isn't anything new in that large institutional type investors people or companies with large, large sums of money, um, those are the ones that are most likely to run at the slight, slightest sign of trouble, as opposed to say, you know, you or me with maybe a couple hundred or a few thousand dollars in the bank. Um, we're covered, we're insured, we know that. They're not covered and insured over, you know, a, a very small amount for them. And they know that. Um, so, you know, so this isn't really surprising as far as that goes. So you mentioned a, a term called insurance. Our listeners have heard these, uh, this term FDIC insured, uh, it's on the back bottom of our statement. I think while we're sitting there at the teller, there's a little sign on the, on the desk that says FDIC insured. What's the difference between an, an insured deposit and an uninsured deposit? Well, before last week, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Theoretically, we're talking theoretically. How's it, how is it supposed to run? So, yeah, the way it's supposed to go is that if you have an account, you are covered, provided you're fully insured, you will not lose a single penny, provided that that account is up to $250,000. You can have multiple accounts, um, but you, and in multiple banks, but each one of those accounts, you're covered up to $250,000. If you have more, than $250,000 in that account, the FDIC does not stand behind it. It is not insured. So if the bank fails, you're, there's a chance that you're not going to get all of your money. Whereas if your money, if your account is below 250, you will get all of your money. So as many, as we said, many of these depositors have far in excess of $250,000, 10 million, 25 million. 
And all of that money is at risk if, if the bank fails. So we've established there are sophisticated investors with lots of, uh, um, or depositors, I suppose, with um, that are in, in a common industry. They may know each other. Uh, they're not insured. So uh, when uh, rumors, and I, I think there were rumors that were around for uh, several weeks, that there may be some trouble with SVP. What was the reaction of these depositors? What 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 precipitated uh, this collapse? Uh, so they they ran. Um, basically, it another piece. I guess maybe I left that out. Another thing that makes it, it looks as though SVB is a little bit unique um, is that they had a lot of an unhed. They had a lot of unhedged exposures um to to interest rate risk so when and and, and I, again this is you know there's a lot of fog here so i i don't want to I, I don't want anyone to take this as gospel but what it looks it looks like happened uh is that as more people recognized there was more of an unhid unhedged risk than what they thought um it, that that's that's when there was a panic and people said, okay, we're, they're going to come in and, the, you know, the bank's losing money. Um, it's going to go down. We're not insured. We got to get our money out of there. So they panicked slash ran, ran by taking their money out and moving it somewhere else so they, so that they could make it safer. Okay. All right. So the, the, you're touch, touching on um, two elements and I'm not sure how, in which order, order I want to take them, but uh, when when I drop off my bank deposit, it it goes I think into a vault. But actually, it's not like uh, we we see on uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, George Bailey is not sitting there with a, a safe in the back. It actually gets invested. So as you mentioned, uh, to protect it against you know the the ravages of inflation. But it also wants to invest in a very very safe way. So they want to get some return at, in a very very safe asset. Describe to our listeners: SVP took the money that they held in in reserve and invested it. Um, how did they invest in it and why were the depositors so concerned, you know, in this current environment? Okay. Uh, like many banks, <laughs> I, I would say like most banks, they put a lot of that money, they invested a lot of that depositor money in treasuries, um, many of them long-term treasuries, and also government-backed mortgage-backed securities or Fannie and Freddie, GSEs, uh, mortgage-backed securities. So they had, you could consider it, uh, a big bond portfolio. And that by itself is not unusual. And generally, you know, just broadly speaking, not particularly risky, you know, in and of itself. Um, but but when interest rates go up, the the value of all those bonds goes down. And that's it works in the opposite way too. If interest rates go down, those bonds become worth even more money. They they go up. So so right now, interest rates are going up. The value of those bonds are going down. And as as people started getting nervous about what the bank was really worth, you know, and and because of the 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 the, the market value of those bonds going down, they wanted to get their money out. Well, then the bank had to sell some of those securities to get the cash. To pay off their investors well interest rates are going up the value of the bonds are going down so when they sell them they're taking a loss and you're taking a loss that means your capital cushion is going down now you're becoming even riskier so you sort of get into this dangerous kind of spiral environment where you're you know if you <laughs> it on paper you're losing money and if anybody wants their money out, now it's not just on paper you're losing money, you're literally losing money. 
Um, and then that makes the bank more fragile and even riskier. And, and that's what we saw happen here. So instead of hedging with other bonds um, so that you had a strategy where the, your, your losses would be equalized by gains, you know, with sort of like a, with a, well, I hate to say derivatives, but you could use derivatives and you can use other bond buying strategies so that if you do have to sell some of those bonds at a loss when rates are going up, that you're okay on the other side. And you offset some of those losses automatically. I'm not sure why Silicon Valley Bank didn't do more of that, but it looks like they didn't do very much of that, at least for this recent period of time. And it's, again, not clear why, but it looks like that's what happened. So with the unhedged losses, that was worse. That was the worst case scenario for them. And and that's what panics people. I want to drill down on this particular idea because a lot of, again, the partisan narrative is that these banks failed because of undue risk. What you're describing to me is a bank that, not atypical, but actually did quite the opposite. These these uh, assets were invested in a way that were so safe that their return wasn't able to keep up as, as let's say, prevailing interest rates went up. In other words, their, their bonds, let's do a little uh, lesson for folks who don't understand how bonds work. If I buy a $100 bond that pays 2%, um, and, and I, you know, hold it to maturity. It's great. It's always worth a hundred dollars when I sell it, but if I want to sell it before that, uh, and interest rates have gone up to 4% or something like that, I, in, in order for my, um, bond to be worth 4% yield, I have to discount the bond. I have to sell it for 98, $98. So my bond, which I bought for hundred is now worth 98. If I've got billions of dollars worth of these bonds, that's a, a huge loss. Um, can you describe yeah. the, that situation for our listeners a little more, more carefully? Um, well, well, you just did, you, you did a really good job there, Joe. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, if, if you or I lost $2, I would, I would imagine, you know, we're not, we're not going to like it, but we're also not going to, you know, have a, a, a heart attack over it. Right. But if you're holding, you know, billions of dollars or, or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bonds, and all of a sudden we're losing small fractions, you know, we're talking about losing millions of dollars. Um, and if we were in a position that we had that much money, we wouldn't like that at all. Um, you know, you don't you don't acquire wealth by not caring about losing large sums of money. So so it is a problem. Um, the unhedged part, you know, that I'm I'm just I'm just not clear on why and, and on, on exactly why that transpired here. Um, but it looks like it did because you can you can take you can you can get involved in all kinds of different swaps and derivative trades, very safe uh interest rate futures and stuff that you you know it, that if if the rate environment does change. Whereas uh, you're losing money on on one part of your portfolio, you're gaining on the other side of your portfolio. So you offset some of those or most of those losses. And my understanding is they used to do that more regularly, and I'm I'm just not clear on exactly why they didn't all the way. Well, far far be it for me to be an apologist for SVB, but um, in my interpretation of the narrative is that. This this bank uh, very recently its deposits had, had exploded, and this was during a time yeah. when we had near zero interest rates. and And venture capitalists, as you say, want to get return on their money. So if money's free, they borrow a lot, they deposit a lot, and uh, everybody makes a fortune. As those um, interest rates start to rise, two things happen. One is, as we mentioned, the, the bonds that are held in reserve become less valuable. 
but also money gets deployed elsewhere and uh, those deposits start to leave. So at the same time, deposits are leaving, the assets left behind are worth less. So we've got this almost perfect storm. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do I have it about right? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's it, really. That's why I, I hated, I hesitated to give a different explanation because you've nailed that one. That's okay. it. Um, I guess I would, I would really quickly point out too that, you know, this isn't some kind of like crazy idea that the bank would put all this money in treasury bonds, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is basically what you have here is the, the typical look for all banks now, um, especially after 2010, is that the regulatory framework, uh, regulatory regime, for lack of a better term, it pushes every bank to do this. So, the, you know, the idea is that government bonds are safer. So, you get into government bonds. Mortgage-backed securities are safer. Get into the mortgage-backed securities. So, that's that in and of itself um, is a policy uh, uh, is a policy outcome too. We should also point that out. All right. So, we're going to say this is not necessarily business as usual. Perhaps they were uh, there was some. Uh, carelessness or uh, lack of sensitivity to the risk of rising interest rates. Uh, But Mm -hmm. let's talk about who is making sure my bank doesn't fail. Well, let's get into the regulation uh, element of this. Uh, We all hear about the Fed, but um, uh, I think our listeners may imagine the Fed is just one large uh, national entity. It's it's broken up into little feds. Uh, Each one (laughs) has its own uh, president and uh, does its own research and work. Tell our listeners who was, you know, who's making sure bankers aren't uh, asleep at the switch. Um, it's supposed to be the San Francisco Fed. <laughs> um, and, and you've got, you've got multiple federal regulators. So if you're a federally chartered bank, the comptroller, uh, also regulates you. And if you're a state chartered bank, the FDIC could also regulate you. If you have FDIC insurance, which all banks do, the FDIC can regulate you. So you've, um, if you're a state chartered bank, you've got a state regulator also looking after you. So you've got examiners from the San Francisco Fed based on where SVB was headquartered. Um, You've got FDIC regulators as well and state regulators all looking at the bank and what they're doing. Um, So they're, they're supposed to you know, make sure they're, they're supervising the bank. They're making sure that they're abiding by their rules. And I, people like me have said for a very, very long time now that we all we've been doing over the last century is coming up with more and more and more rules. They all amount to more capital restrictions, more liquidity restrictions, uh, more boxes to check. So if you have this much capital, you're okay. If you have this much liquidity, you're okay. And that's so that's what you do. And you know, you can look at the financial statements. The, the the recent ones available at least through 2022 for SVB. And yeah, they check a lot of boxes. Now, there's more to it than that. So I'm not just, again, I am oversimplifying it, but they, they, they have, we have all these different federal and state regulators going into the bank, making sure they check all the boxes. And somebody's supposed to be looking at that and saying, hey, you've got a lot of risk here. Hey, there's a lot of risk over there. Gee, it really looks like you're over-concentrated in one area. Let's talk about that. That's supposed to be happening amongst all three of those regulators. So uh, again, I want to challenge some of the dominant narratives that we hear in the news. Um, one of, pr- primarily from, uh, uh, let's say, partisans on the left uh, regard banks now as 
wildly unregulated. That that um, <laughs> the narrative I think is after the collapse of the world, uh, global financial crisis of two thousand eight and nine, uh, we had Dodd Frank, which imposed all these um, guardrails, so it could never happen again. Uh, and then uh, a new administration, two thousand eighteen, uh, had different regulators who somewhat watered down uh, the the barriers or the rules that constrain banks. And um, you know, all five years since two thousand eighteen, we've had a ticking time bomb, and this collapse was inevitable. Is this in any way related to the change in regulation that occurred um, in two thousand eighteen, or any time in between when Dodd Frank was passed and today? I have a very, very difficult time seeing how. Uh, I really do. Um, for some of the reasons that I just mentioned as well. But it, this is um, this is a long-term trend. You can go back to the Dodd-Frank stuff. Uh, you, you hear people in Congress saying, oh, well, we deregulated the banks. Well, we didn't. That's just not true. And then in 2010, they passed Dodd-Frank and they say, we've got all these new protections and we're never going to have this problem again. Well, you should probably know that that's not true. Um, and then in 2018, yes, we did amend the, the Dodd-Frank law. But if you look at that bill, the bill is uh, S-2155, long economic growth something name. Um, but you can look at that bill and the sections that amend Dodd-Frank, which are believer in section four, title four of that bill, it's five pages long. It, it, there's just not much there. And what it the, the biggest thing that it did was change the threshold uh for what we would call enhanced supervision but a couple of things there one enhanced supervision really again only means possibly slightly higher liquidity and capital restrictions that's for the most part and then on on top of that they did change the threshold from 50 billion to 250 billion but there were a lot of exceptions to that. So it's really more like they changed it from 50 to 100 billion. The regulators always had discretion in what they did with those thresholds. And the, the other really big factor here is that these are holding company restrictions. So they're not the operating company itself, the insured depository institution itself still had to meet the Basel III requirements. So these are not impacted by Dodd-Frank or by the law that amended Dodd-Frank. Um, and, and, and some people have also pointed out that they had less stress testing because of the 2018 law. And again, that's not what stress testing was for. Stress testing is supposed to be for adverse economic scenarios. We're looking at the last crisis, the OA crisis, and can we stop that from happening? The stress test wasn't supposed to look at uh, you know, sort of individually idiosyncratic, if you will, screw ups at the bank. You know, what if you, what if you, what if your own investments went bad? It, it was supposed to be a macro prudential view. Supposedly, that was the only blind spot in our regulatory framework. And Dodd Frank had supposedly fixed that. And this is not a macro issue that went down here. So, um, it, it's just incredibly difficult to see how those 2018 changes had anything to do with this. Banks have always been in highly, highly regulated before Dodd-Frank, before, before 1999, after Dodd-Frank, after 2018. Um, you know, it's just, it's really, really difficult to see how that any of those changes did anything 
that that would have would have brought this out. The last piece I'll say about that. Yes, the threshold has changed and we can debate about whether that was good or bad or exactly where the you know the the extra regulations kicked in and how much discretion we had, but if you look over the last several years, last decade or so, you can see SVB moving over those thresholds. And it doesn't really change very much, uh, it being its capital position and its liquidity position. So it it had checked all those boxes, even for larger banks. Uh, in some cases, they had higher capital and liquidity ratios than even the largest, most restricted banks. So again, incredibly difficult to see how any of those changes had anything to do with this. Indeed, uh, as they say, we're always fighting the last war. The 2008 uh, crisis was a function of the deposits or the uh, assets that banks held were not worth what they were supposed to be worth, right? They were garbage assets. So that was a um, a credit crisis, uh, right? A, a credit quality crisis, not a liquidity crisis. So what, what we have uh, in this case is a bank's um, assets met all the requirements of Dodd-Frank. Uh, the regulators had the prerogative to scrutinize what you characterize as an idiosyncratic risk, which is we covered early in the show, SVP is very idiosyncratic. It's a very special bank that had unique uh, challenges. Regulators had the prerogative, but didn't do it. This is beyond the failure of the, the bank itself to, to uh, anticipate uh, um, interest rate risk. Regulators failed here too, because their purview uh, allowed them to anticipate what seems to me again, the wisdom of hindsight, to be an obvious danger. Uh, do you want to say anything more than that? That's right. No, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, everything's obvious once you know the answer, right? <laughs> so that's, and and the, the last thing I'll, I'll touch on there is the kind of, one of the things that you, you brought up there in the 08 crisis, it was all these toxic assets, these things that didn't turn out to be worth what we thought. So the idea after that was we'll make them safer and, and you'll have to have more government bonds. Well, okay, but they're still bonds and, you know, interest rates don't have to stay ultra low and not move very much forever. And that's probably unrealistic to think that they would, but that's what we did. Um, and then that's what happened. You know, rates started going up. So, all right. So I, I want to, you know, I'm sure our listeners are wondering, okay, there were mistakes made. Uh, the regulators will probably keep their jobs. But what about the banks? Who who loses money here? Uh, I, I'm um, let's say I'm all three. I'm a depositor uh, SVB. Uh, I have a, sh a stake in the company. Maybe I'm its, on its board. You know who who's going to suffer from this? You know m many manifold mistakes. The the shareholders, uh, the board probably as well is going to suffer. Um, it 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 looks as though depositors and i guess you would have to say depositors who are not shareholders or not board not board members uh they're they're going to be made whole here um so it, it's not a we, we've been careful about this i think uh over the last couple of weeks it's not a, a bank bailout in in the broad sense um, and, and, and you don't see a lot of the kinds of things that you saw in 2008, but it is a bailout nonetheless in that you had a whole bunch of people whose money was supposed to be uninsured and at risk. And it turns out that it's not. And that's, that's where we are now. So it's a depositor bailout, not a bank bailout. So everybody who owns uh, a share of that bank is, you know, is, is wiped out. Uh, but the depositors, even if they're 
venture capitalists with $20 million in the bank, uh, their, their, their uh, deposits are protected or, or uh, um, yeah. insured by the, by the federal government. Okay, uh, so we've got we figured out who who is at fault, um, who's going to lose their shirt, um, but we also talked about the fact that now, as of two weeks ago, prior to two weeks ago, we all thought we were insured up to two fifty. Now we think we're insured to perhaps two hundred fifty million. Uh, <laughs> what is the risk now imposed there? If if I now believe, I mean, I, I can see why the the government would do that. We don't want everybody to panic, everyone to withdraw their money and and have a uh, you know a, a global bank run. But if I don't have to worry about the health of my bank. What are the what do they call the moral hazards? What are the knock-on effects of having everyone assured that all their money is guaranteed forever? Well, one of them is that you have more people with a lower incentive to care what the bank is doing, right? And and that means that you're 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 dependent on a smaller number of people to not screw anything up, and um, that includes a small group of regulators. You're expecting them to sort of have perfect foresight, and that that's just unrealistic. Um, and you know, you're expecting things to never go wrong, and that's also unrealistic. And to basically, what happens is you end up where people can who are running the bank and who are running the investments. They, although they do have an incentive to not lose their jobs and not do anything crazy. Um, but they have an incentive to take more risk. They have they can take more chances. And if they meet more regulatory requirements, if they're over and above minimums, for example, then they can get away with more risk. Um, so, so that's that's nothing new. So that's a there's a moral hazard component there. And you know, we might not find out that it's risky until we're in a situation like we're in now. And it's like, well, oh, we should have never let that happen. Well, okay, but nobody ever thought about that. <laughs> um you know, before it, before that went wrong, nobody thought that was so risky. Um, but there is that risk there. And then on the the the, I think what I would call a sort of like the broader long term risk uh, or downside, maybe, is that somebody's going to pay for all this. You know, so you're going to have uh, you're going to have the government step in and and clean everything up and say, well, because we're doing that now, there are going to be even more regulations. And because we're doing that, we're 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 going to increase the assessment on on deposits for deposit insurance. So the fees are going to go up, even if your bank didn't do anything wrong, right? So, well, okay, who's going to pay for that? Well, we all are. You know, there's that's going to it's an increased cost, and it's going to get passed on to depositors at to some degree, um, whether it's whether it's fewer employment opportunities in banking, whether it's uh, less pay in the banking industry and or whether it's higher account fees across the entire industry and higher interest rates across the entire industry, somebody has to pay for that. Those fees, those higher fees are going to come from somewhere and the higher regulation um, is going to make the system even more dependent on, for example, a group of regulators at the San Francisco Fed, and you know it, it's again unrealistic to do that, uh, and and hope really and 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 depend on them never messing anything up. Um, you know that's not that's not creating a diverse, uh, robust 
financial system that's it's that's creating a very weak fragile financial system depending on one or two people to to not screw anything up and that's not good and indeed uh you know i i i don't think uh, our listeners will take any comfort in, in those remarks uh, i wasn't going to bring it up but the the other bank uh, the high profile bank signature bank uh also also failed uh one of its board members uh was uh, one would think a very very uh, understood banking regulations very well. Uh, Barney Frank, he was uh, one of our congressmen. We we sent him to Washington from our, uh, the great uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but he sat on the uh, Banking Regulation Committee for, for a very long time. In fact, what the, the Dodd-Frank uh, regulation we were quoting here, he's the Frank of Dodd-Frank, uh, and his bank failed, even though he was on the board. Uh, again, one would think as a fiduciary on a board and one who's a skilled regulator and understands the, the four corners of the Dodd-Frank regulations and the dangers of bank, banking wouldn't want to assume that Barney Frank being on your board would make you the last um, bank ever to fail for, let's say, uh, poor management. You'd be kind here. Yeah, I, I bet he's, well, it sounds like he's just as surprised as anyone too. So, <laughs> um, but I, I, I I know less about the details on the signature side. It looks like there were, um, I mean, I, I don't want to say anything too strong about signature because I, I am not as comfortable with the details, but it looks like there's a lot more controversy around exactly what happened and, and exactly what their status was. Um, but as you say, you've got the Frank and the Dodd-Frank uh, he knows what the regulations are. He knows what the rules are. He knows what the warning signs are supposed to be if if you take him at his word. Um, and yet, here's the bank that he's on the board of going straight down. So um, it it is very uh, unusual, at least in my lifetime, to see something like this happen. So going forward, our, our, our listeners, I think they're somewhat assured that the, the government stepped in and, and guaranteed depositors. So those people with money in a bank beyond the insured level uh, can take a little comfort, at least for now, in that. Um, but going forward, uh, what are the likely um, reactions uh, from depositors? Are, are, is everyone going to flee either to big banks or small banks? Or, uh, you know, you, you mentioned we, there's going to be some change in how banks are managed. Uh, it, it, does this favor one type of bank over another going forward? Well, yeah, it does. It does at the moment favor the largest banks. And you do see some deposit movements right now, from what I understand, uh, people taking money out of the smaller banks and moving them into the larger, quote unquote, too big to fail banks. Um, lots of people, myself included, back in 2010 or around 2010, said that Title I of Dodd-Frank was a bad idea. If you want to prevent too big to fail bailouts, the last thing you want to do is identify the banks that you already believe are too big to fail and formalize that in U.S. law. And that's that's a big warning sign. Yet that's exactly what Title I of Dodd-Frank did. So obviously, you've got people looking at the situation saying... I don't care what you're saying about the insured. Some people are saying that it's not all covered. Some people are saying it's only systemic risk if it's covered. Is, is covered. I'm putting my money in the biggest banks. I'm going to JP Morgan and Citi, the quote unquote G-SIBs, globally systemic important banks, 
because they're not going down. We know they're not going to, the government's not going to let them fail. So that's where I'm going to go put my money. And that's, that's what you see happening right now. So effectively, the government provides, a, as I say, an insurance subsidy, if you will, that says, that's right. you know, this bank, small bank, you, you, you take your own risk. This other bank, we're going to make sure uh, you don't lose. So um, what's the downside? You said there'd be fewer banking jobs and perhaps no listener is going to cry over that. But we all know uh, entrepreneurs who rely on these smaller banks for, let's say, um, portfolio lending. They, they want to know your unique risk uh, and your unique opportunities. It's very difficult to go to a big bank and know anyone's name, get your calls returned. So small banks do play a role. How do you think that'll affect the uh, American economy going forward with fewer, let's say, portfolio banks out there trying to um, invest in small business? It, it's it's not it's not a positive impact. Uh, it's, it's not. I don't. It it will be difficult to measure, but it's it's definitely in the direction of harmful. Um, you're you're. It's going to be harder to do capital deals. It's going to be harder to just in general capital formation is going to become more difficult. It's going to be difficult to get loans. It's going to be a more concentrated industry. Banking is going to be a more concentrated industry. It's going to be much harder to be a small bank, and you know even bigger picture. All of this makes it much easier uh, to say, well, what we need is more government support for these smaller and mid-sized banks. And we need to do more subsidies or they're not going to be there. We need to have, you know, it, it becomes more of a government utility kind of operation. And and it, again, justifies even more regulation. So you have a situation where you're 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 pushing all of the incentives to go into government funds um as opposed to private funds so that I mean that's that's taking money out of the private economy and funding the government instead of what would otherwise be productive activity well we're getting close to the uh, the end of our time together i appreciate you i know your expertise is in demand these weeks um more than they otherwise would be but i'd like to ask uh, our expert guests um you know we, we it's easy to criticize but if you were given the, the keys to the kingdom and made king for a day or a week or a year, you know, you mentioned some some of the things you would have done differently in Dodd-Frank 10 years ago. What would you do if you were either head of the Fed or or a um, someone in Congress who really cared about the health of the U.S. banking system? What, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Oh, wow. I would love that for a day or two. <laughs> Maybe maybe more than two days, but um, I th- what we need to do is the opposite of what we've been doing for the last roughly 100 years. We've been doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. And I'm not going to repeat what that is the definition of, but you, we've been we've been doing more and more and more regulation, and we've been doing more and more and more federal backing that does not make the system safer. It makes it more fragile. And we just keep going through the same thing. We need to go the other way. We need to pare back. I would I would repeal Dodd-Frank. I would bring the deposit insurance limits back uh, to the pre-Dodd-Frank uh, uh, coverage limit, which is, is still going to be about 10 times what the average transaction account holds. So we're we're not talking about hurting the little guy here at all. Okay, that's that's just not it. We would have a deposit insurance limit of about fifty thousand dollars, whereas the average transaction account is only like five thousand. So 
this is and the idea is to bring more market discipline in and you're not going to have a, a private market for deposit insurance uh and 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 other risk base uh, other other risk enhancements for those uninsured accounts when you keep covering it with the government there, there's no reason to start a company to do that so um those would be my biggest things i would i would i would repeal dodd frank i would uh shrink the deposit insurance coverage limit and i would also do some fed reforms i would i would stop letting the fed do all these facilities uh, you know, they they come up with the special lending facilities. Uh, they have emergency lending, systemic risk exceptions. Well, if you repealed Dodd Frank, you would repeal some of what was changed there. But I would I would take the whole thing out. Section thirteen three for the Fed, I would get rid of the whole thing. Um, where you 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 would make them a lender of last resort, but they already had a facility to do that. That's the discount window. If somebody doesn't want to go to it, that's fine. That's their problem. They didn't really need it. So, I mean, that's those are those are the things that I would do off the top of my head. So, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in a sense, without all that regulation, what what manages banks, what disciplines banks, is market discipline, not regulation. Is, is yeah. that a characterization? No, that's exactly right. So you're still going to have minimum capital ratios and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to have banks that are wanting to tell people, hey, look, this is how sound we are. And it's going to matter because if if it if if those depositors who are over the limit have their money in there, they want to see, they want to believe that it's safe. They want to know what you're doing. And that's the market discipline, right? And and if we don't do that, um, we we end up where we are now, where everybody looks around like, well, I don't know what they're doing. Why would I? Why would I care? My money's covered. Indeed, and 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 it, it, so the cycle goes: M- more mistakes caused by re- regulation and guarantees, and we pile more regulations and more guarantees on top. So That's okay, right. well, we've we've run out of time. I uh, you know I hope it didn't lead the witness too much. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're really great. Uh, our listeners, I'm sure, want to learn more. It's a complex topic. We uh, you know maybe didn't think about this. Uh, since the global financial crisis, where can our readers follow your writing and, and learn more about uh, your perspective? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, if they go to Cato.org, you'll see all kinds of things that my my guys have written, uh, me and and my other my folks here in CMFA. Uh, our blog is Cato at Liberty, and I've also got a Forbes column. If you just look up Norbert Michelle Forbes. Google that you'll you'll see all my columns. Uh, I put things there too. Uh, so any of those places would work. All right, wonderful. Well, you've got I uh, hope a few more followers now and uh, keep up the good work. We appreciate it. I appreciate your writing and and thank you for joining me today on Hubwonk. Oh, thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.